Hey guys, it's Matt here, and I got a story for you. When I was a kid, I was playing hockey, and oh man, there was this one year, this one team, we could not beat these guys. They were all over us. There were competitive games, though. They were tight, but we just could not beat them. And I remember the last game of the year, it was up against this team, and we were gearing up. We were like, we have to get these guys. When we won that last game, it was so satisfying because we finally got the victory over the team that had dummied us, that had dominated us for so long. I think this is the same thing with sexual brokenness, with sexual sin, where there's been brokenness in our lives and the enemy has come and taken ground and he's dominated us for so long, but we get to make a difference. We get to be part of a message and a a mission of freedom. It is such a cool opportunity. So I want to invite you, men and women of any age, to be part of the Action Squad. The Action Squad is something that we're putting together right now. We're looking for 100 people to be on the Action Squad. There's going to be some competitive nature to it. There's prizes. And we're going to work together to help produce a documentary that is literally going to change the world. We're featuring stories of sexual brokenness, of people who have been restored and redeemed, reconciled to God and to people in their their lives. And we're going to feature these stories in this world-class documentary that will be a resource for churches to host movie nights, for small small groups to watch together, for families to watch and be inspired by. And it's going to highlight the problem in the church, but also show the, the power of God that is at work when we bring this stuff to light. And so if you want to be part of the Action Squad and help us put this documentary together, I would love for you to go to restoredministries.ca slash Action Squad. You can watch a 10-minute video there that I put together on what it can look like for you to join us in this mission and be part of putting this documentary together. So restoredministries.ca slash Action Squad. Hope to see you there. Welcome to the Pure Victory Podcast, full of hot tips to help you win at sex, conquer porn, and find purpose in staying free forever. Here are your hosts, Matt Klein and Braden Hafner. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Pure Victory Podcast. And we hope you're doing well. And I'm really excited. We both are to have Gary Tanger on with us today. Now, to give you some background, Gary was my pastor for years, my whole life for the most part. And I have so appreciated seeing his leadership in leading our church and, and just guiding us as a, a body. And we're so thankful to have him on. Now he is the uh, district superintendent of Alberta Northwest Territories as far as um, our church denomination. But I think the most important thing, and this is what he told us, is that he is a husband, he is a grandfather, and he not only that, he is a father. I guess you'd have to be if you're a grandfather, right? <laughs> I think that's how it works. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but those you just mentioned that those are those are his biggest achievements, um, and what a great uh, way to, to put that. We we really appreciate that, Gary. Um, you saying that because I think that those are some great achievements of those three things. So we just want to say thank you for being on the podcast today. We really are excited to have you. Thank you. When I think of leaders in my life and people that I have appreciated and looked up to. You know, I don't know if you've ever known this, but you're at the top of the list for for myself, just in seeing what exemplifies a, a godly man, a man who who leads um, well. So we're excited to have you discuss what it means to be a leader and how to have healthy boundaries in regards to sexual boundaries and relational boundaries, so that we're walking in a way that protecting ourselves, but the people we love and the people that are entrusted to us and in, in, in who we serve. So we just want to unpack that a little bit. And to start off, we're going to throw you a question here. If you could go back to when you first started out, what would you tell your younger self about having healthy boundaries in those areas? 
it would probably definitely be things that I've learned later on that I didn't know then, of course. I remember having a conversation with Greg Johnson, and he has directed uh, youth ministry and then a individual Christian leadership ministry uh, for years in America. He was in my youth group 100 years ago, but uh, he said once that he reminded young leaders that were starting off that he had influence over. He said, just know that whatever you do and whatever you say, is very likely sooner or later to end up on the late evening news. One of the great delusions, I mean, sin at its root, I think, is the original definition of insanity. Thinking that you can live contrary to all God's laws and God's ways and God's truth and build a good life for yourself. That's insane. And so the insanity of sin permeates uh, all of our sinful decisions. In other words, we think, I can hide this, I can beat this, uh, I can get away with this. And his little statement just kind of reminded me provocatively that uh, uh, sin loves darkness, it loves obscurity, it it, uh, loves anonymity, um, and that's an illusion. Sin has a way of getting revealed. And I think that's one of God's ways and God's laws that uh, what's said in secret ends up being shouted from the rooftops. I think that's that's not the only thing, but in the uh, delusiveness of, of a sinful choice or trying to uh, caution myself of what I would do and say and believe, I think that's that's a great axiom to start with. It's not the only one. It is a great axiom to start with. It's uh, a lie that I think all of everybody who struggles with something, you just hope that it will never get out. You you don't want anybody to know and we want to put on a good face, but it is God's truth. And I mean, we can confess and repent ourselves, or if we don't, then God will expose and he'll expose for our good, but also the good of the church. That person who who is struggling and they're a leader say they're in a position of influence and they're even preaching, whether it's a youth group or senior pastor, whatever it is, but they've got a struggle in their life with pornography or any other sexual sin. What would you say to that person in terms of setting up boundaries to protect themselves and their, and their, um, just the, the health that they have in their private life? We need great advice to get out of things where we're stuck. You know, strongholds are called strongholds. <laughs> because they are difficult to deal with. And they, apart from intervention of a greater power, probably rule us. That's why we call them strongholds. And I think of 2 Corinthians 7, where Paul contrasts worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. I don't know if those verses come to mind or not, but uh, worldly sorrow is saying nuts. We got caught. Ah, it's awful that this didn't work out. Not whether it was the right thing to do or the honorable thing to do or whatever. We're just lamenting over the chaos of the the way things have shaken out. That's worldly sorrow. Uh, Boy, we wanted this and we didn't get it. Or it turned out to be uh, something less than the ideal we imagined. But then he talks about godly sorrow. Godly sorrow, of course, uh, leads to repentance, he says. And, you know, if you've 
got something that's whipping you left and right or recurrently, you got the choice of uh, following the ethic of worldly sorrow or godly sorrow. And so repentance, whoso confesseth and forsaketh his deeds will find grace in time of need. And so some of these things that I'm telling you are the hard lessons I learned uh, in the absence of the advice that I wish I could have given myself as a young person that I didn't have. And I had to learn that uh, godly sorrow, which is entails confession. One of the most powerful things for me was the journey of learning the power of a clear conscience. Paul talks about this in a couple of places, talked about being armed with his faith and a clear conscience. Well, what's that? Clear conscience being that there's nobody that can look at you and say that you offended me, you wronged me, and you never endeavored to make it right. I don't think there are too many people who can say Anybody in the world can look at me and say, you never offended me because you're not perfect in all your ways and all your words and in all your deeds. So we've all got a little bit of baggage, some worse than others. Some of the greatest Christians had some of the worst baggage. Paul was not really a clean profile. Right. Yeah. You know, he had lots of baggage and so lots of other people. But I think the commitment to a clear conscience, I remember something, not in a sexual way, but I had begun to learn about clearing my conscience. I was about to do something that all of a sudden it hit me that it was illegal. And I said to myself, and I wonder if it wasn't the Spirit of God speaking in my knower, but said, okay, if you do this, are you willing to be standing in front of a game warden again, telling him what you did, contrary to the law? How did you like that first experience? Was that really fun? Was it a great day? No, that was a terrible day. I was scared spitless. So contemplating a recurrence of, you know, a different aspect of it, but something that would have been wrong, would have been illegal, said, okay, when the Spirit of God convicts you about this, are you going to eagerly look forward to that day of going and clearing your conscience? And I just said, whoa. I don't want to do that. So, and that, that was just in kind of, uh, you know, ordinary precedence of life type of situation. But when it came to having to clear my conscience in moral ways, having made phone calls, having written letters, having gone and talked to people personally and said, you know what? I just want to apologize to you for my selfishness, uh, the choices I made and the, the things that were detrimental to you, disrespectful to you, so on. And I'd just like to ask your forgiveness. I did not enjoy those connections. Uh, they, I, I'd, I'd rather paid a $300 speeding ticket. Would have been easier to just send in the money yeah. than go face somebody, talk to them. And this, this doesn't happen in a week or a month or what. This was in a process of years of being taught about moral freedom, about uh, the basis of that, about the coordinate of clear conscience, how it fits into all this. And so it was a long process that went over a period of years as Carrie and I were attending uh, some seminars that were helpful in training you in these kinds of things. And I began to say, okay, 
uh, you've cleared your conscience on some uh, moral indiscretions in the past. As the stakes go up, who do you want to be standing in front of and saying, you know, I got to tell you, here's here are the goods. I tell you, that has a very chilling effect on the cusp of making a sinful decision. If you know that, because I'm not going to throw my faith overboard. I'm not going to say, I don't care what God thinks. Uh, because, and if you didn't, well, then I think you'd decide differently. But I did care what God thinks. And I thought, I don't want to live without his blessing and favor on my life. Uh, I was headed for ministry. And I thought, I, I can't do this through the power of human ingenuity. I need the blessing and favor of God. So I'd have to clear my conscience. I would have to make this right. How much fun would this be compared to how devastating it would be to have to then do the cleanup afterwards? Quite frankly, that became quite a snow fence for me. Hmm. Uh, I think one of the biggest things, if you talk about advice and give yourself... I would make a commitment to a clear conscience. But that for me, it took a long time for me to understand that. It took a long time for the uh, scriptural underpinning and the life experiences to, to spiritually train me to grasp this, what that consisted of. But anyway, that became a very powerful protection for me, commitment to a clear conscience. And when we talk to people now, I, I deal with people who've, uh, in their ministry, who encountered moral failure. One of the recurrent statements that I make is I say, okay, this, this has gone this far and we're dealing with this. I would urge you to make a decision that you're going to go through every hard gate from here to the end of this process. That if you look at things and you say, I, I, re I met with a, uh, a lady at one point, and I said, uh, you know, I think the next step is you're going to need to tell your husband what's happened. And she said, that's not going to happen. I am never going to do that. And she never came back to see me again. Because she had said, okay, if that's, if that's the cost of the ticket to get on this plane, I'm not buying it. She said, that's not going to be. So, and I feel with her, I don't think she was a believer. And so there's a lot of stuff that only grace can help you to process. And so I understand why she didn't. But I tell Christian leaders uh, that have that have made bad choices and have got into some very, very heart-rending situations, I say, at the same time, I don't think you're going to come out the other end of this well, unless you say, whatever righteous and hard decisions. I call them the hard gates that you have to go through. Make a commitment that you're going to go through them. And and God will get you through this. He will pull you through. That's hanging on to God's hand as you're being pulled through the rose bushes, you know, and uh, God will pull you through. He'll get you through. That's that's great. You know, one of the things um, at Family Life, we always coach new marriages, so young marrieds, is that you have wet pavement at the beginning of your marriage. So choose your imprint and choose your ruts wisely uh, of what you're going to do in your marriage and setting yourself up long-term. Now, using that kind of logic, same thing with a leader or someone who's in ministry or whatever, could be any any kind of avenue. What are those ruts that, the good ruts that 
we should look to implement or work at? And what are some of those ones that maybe we should move away from and, and, and avoid? There's some great things there. Because we don't fail in new ways, we fail in old ways. We, we tend to head for the ruts. One graph that I saw at one point had a kind of a, a spiral going up. And then the individual put kind of some slashes along the spiral at random places around it in its many cycles around and said, um, those slashes represent the strongholds that are typical of your past. The things that you remember, they are the areas to which Satan will initially appeal to reseduce you into a pattern of, of disobedience. You know, the, the, the adage, I think somebody else once said, you know, if you don't love boiled eggs, you're likely not to be tempted by them. You're going to be tempted by the things that you love, you know, and if, if you, you love sugared drinks or if you uh, love high calorie treats, you know, whatever, and you've had them many times in the past and you walk by the bowl, you know, you don't pick the olives or the boiled eggs you pick the sugar treats or or you might pick the olives if you love them because we're all wired a little differently. No, definitely the sugar treats. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You're not picking the olives. Okay. No. Well, we won't worry about you in that area then. Um, <laughs> it's, it's taking inventory of where have I typically been inclined to fail in the past. I remember instruction in one course on holiness that uh, I took. He said, you need to retrace the anatomy of your failures uh, is it Friday nights at the end of a long week? Does it occur when you drive by 7-Eleven? Does it happen when you have this night alone in the house and you have access to kind of unsupervised technology? Is that when it happens? And for every, for many people, it's going to be very diverse. It's when a certain person is in town. It's when, a, you know, whatever. It, it, it's so uh, diverse. But it's figuring out, you know what? Seven out of 10 times, that's when that happens. And so how do you, on that night, when you tend to be alone with technology, that's maybe that's not a night that you should be home alone. Now, that's kind of mechanical. I, I don't think you can outsmart yourself totally. You can find ways to get done what you want to do. But you, you say, you know, this just has recurrently happened why don't I try and shake up the pattern of my life and eliminate some of that where uh, I realize that that exposure causes a mounting degree of temptation. Those are some of the things when you talk about ruts and habits and choices. You know, there are things that we don't see. Again, I, I believe the, the roots of sin are the perfect definition of insanity. And so we can we can justify almost anything we want. We can make a reasonable case for our sin. We can blame it on other people. We can do whatever. One of the things that helps you objectively, I think, is for me, listening to my wife. Uh, it could be a wife listening to her husband, too. I've seen both sides of this. But the advice that comes from someone else who's not predisposed to your failure areas or who can see what you say is innocuous and they see it as uh, dangerous, just listening to them say, you know what, I don't think you should be in that meeting alone. I, well, what do you mean? You know, I'm an adult, you know, I'm smart. I know what's going on. I'm not, a, wasn't born last night. I'm, 
I've got some experience. And uh, <clears throat> well, I don't know. I, I think you should have someone with you, you know, over the years, uh, learning that one, one executive said, uh, I let my wife look over the, the resumes of, uh, that I'm considering for hiring. Not everybody's going to want to do that. There were cases when somebody said, you know, that was a good uh, second analysis about who to hire. I know a fellow who said I, I changed massage companies because the therapist was too good looking. Um, he just said I, it was, there was no failure. There was no incidents and whatever. But he knows the thoughts that have trickled through his head. And he goes home one day and he says, you know what? I don't think I need to go back to that company anymore. It's not in my best interests. Uh, he preempted something because nothing did happen. It wasn't even adultery in the mind. He was just saying, the gathering clouds of this situation don't look like what I want to recurrently place myself in. I don't, to some people that may sound legalistic. I think it's the better part of wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely wisdom. And, and it's um, it's not a, it's not a sin. Like some people struggle. Like why am I attracted to this person, and why am I having these thoughts? And you know, I I love that you're talking about the clean conscience and making an effort to have a clean conscience and having that be the goal. Because we 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 think and talk so much in our world about setting goals and and doing certain things, and the goals are always about what we want to accomplish. But just having a goal for our character and a goal for a clean conscience, I think, is so powerful. And I love how you explain that. And so that executive or, or that person who was talking about that with the massage parlor, he was making a goal and, and achieving it to have a clean conscience. And so just I know a lot of people struggle with the, just the thoughts and the desires. And like you said, if if you're attracted to something, you might be tempted with it, but it's what you do with that after is what I think we hear you're saying. And so yeah. we, we, uh, we, we agree. We really appreciate what you're saying. Yeah. You're talking about listening to people in your life, listening to your wife. Can you talk though to leaders having other people around them and what that um, looks like? Because a lot of leaders I know feel alone and pastors sometimes feel alone. Pastors feel like they can't open up to people. They can't be transparent. I don't know if you've experienced that, but I know you've been around a lot of leaders for a lot of decades. And so sometimes it is hard, but can you just speak to the importance of that and how leaders can establish that protective community in their life? You know, you access that kind of protection in different ways, depending on how you're wired like, I think the more social people crave the more open and communicative relationships. And uh, they love having the group of five accountability partners that uh, once every three months they meet in a hotel and they tell each other everything. And, and uh, you know, it's really a sort of a thing. I've never been a part of that. I find that really hard for me <laughs> by my wiring. Some yeah. people, they're looking for that. They say, I've been looking for my life for something like that. I've been looking for my whole life not to get into something like that. You know, <laughs> I'm just, I don't know. I just get awkward. But there are other ways. So I'm the person that doesn't gravitate to having, you know, a, a couple of mentors that ask me the hard questions and know everything about me. I think that's a very good thing. And I, I know some stellar leaders who do that. Uh, in my processing of things, uh, so I'm saying that's a good option for some people. Uh, for me, my heroes, some of them don't even know me, but my heroes have been that for me. 
like they are the ones that cast the vision for a clear conscience. I'd never talked personally to them. Uh, but as they articulate it in the spirit of God witness to in my knower, that's true. That's for you. You need that. And I thought, I'm going to adopt that. And I've had the, the privilege of being exposed to such stellar spiritual examples. My biggest perk in ministry has not been a paycheck. It hasn't been positions of, of notoriety. It has been the people that I've got to hang around with. And so <clears throat> I would go for lunch with them. We would go to their place after church for some food and visiting. Uh, I tr in fact, we'd try to expose our kids to them. We'd ask them uh, canned questions to get these people talking about things that I wanted my kids to hear. Missionaries, we'd talk about their sacrifice, their 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 heart for God, whatever. So anyway, that's another thing with our kids. But uh, for me, when I would get with them, I would try and mine uh, for the words of counsel. Um, that was huge for me. Uh, so very helpful, but the, you know what the single, and, and I'm, I'm a bit of a social anomaly, I think, and maybe not a good pattern for a lot of people because the most powerful protective things in my moral demeanor have come in the privacy of engrafting scripture into my mind. Like it was, it was memorizing, uh, the book of James, memorizing first John, memorizing the book of Romans and going through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, memorizing first Corinthians, talking about all these things. Because as you memorize and then you meditate, you go through those scripture in an incredibly detailed, anointed review fashion. And it's so much differently than reading or reading slowly or rereading. You know, it's all very good. But it was in memorizing and meditating that I was advised that I would uh, ignite uh, uh, initiatives of moral freedom in my life. And I wanted that. And so memorizing scripture, it became, as, as David in Psalm 119 says, that your, your, your precepts became my counselors. And honestly, I've never paid $150 a night hour for counseling, though I think that's a good thing. And that's helpful for people. But my counselors were the hours and hours and hours spent in memorizing and meditating scripture. I, I was looking at first uh, Corinthians, I think it's four, one point, And it said, you, you're so eager to see justice done. That's a, I don't know, what would that mean normally reading over that in your devotions? But initially, immediately, the Holy Spirit connected me to a wrong in my heart and in my character. And the Spirit just said, how committed are you to seeing justice done? How committed are you to making this right? I don't even know if that's proper exegesis from that verse. Uh, but it, for me, it became an application, if not an interpretation, an application of it to where I said, you know, God, that's so absolutely right. And I cannot live, uh, I cannot hope for any success outside of your abiding blessing on me. And so I said, I, I have to make that right because it's the just and right thing to do. Now, I don't know, how would you explain that to somebody? I, I don't know if I'm doing a very good job of it right now, but 
that became for me like better than the vaccination against the COVID virus. It, it uh, launched restorative actions in my life that uh, <clears throat> were helpful to me and other people. <clears throat> but again, it also entrenched habits. And you asked about ruts and soft concrete and habits. The, <clears throat> the action of obeying, they say revival is really just a condition of being willing to do the next right thing the Holy Spirit asks you to do. I love that definition of revival. And uh, if, you're, if you're not willing to do what the Holy Spirit asks you to do, I don't know, how can we be talking about revival here? Uh, or right relationship with, because that's what revival is. It's a return to right relationship with God. So if there's a willingness, if there's a preparedness to say, I, God, want to do the next thing that always that you ask me to do. And when you sense in scripture or in the prompting of the spirit or through the counsel of a good mentor, like you've referred to these people who'd get together for accountability, and there's, there's good godly conduct depicted in that conversation and you say that's the next right thing for me and, and I need to do that you know people tend to do what they want to do and you can give them 52 rules if they don't want to do them the rules will not win and the want to comes by the mind of Christ in you that's why I think conversion is the epicenter of this whole thing that we have the mind of Christ uh, we're not thinking of carnal worlds in human reasoned uh, concepts. We're thinking of spiritual thoughts expressed in, by spiritual words prompted by the mind of Christ in us. You know, without that, I think we're dead in the water for whipping this stuff. And th again, that's a sweeping generalization, but I, it's my story and I'm sticking to it. I, I just believe that. Well, and foundationally, I think that's so central. Yeah. You know, that is, you know, Jesus is the source of our understanding. He is the motivation for it. And he is the guide in it as well um, as, as the Holy Spirit leads us. And now kind of unpacking this as a leader too, you know, we, we have this kind of central foundational thing of understanding. We talked about accountability. We talked about what are the things and the reasons why we, the motivations we, we do what we do. Now, as a leader, and I think this applies to all of us, what are some practical boundaries we're talking um, that we can implement? So we see down the road, we see the potential things that could occur and we don't always know, but, and I know like to give you an example, you know, one of the things that, and on a practical sense that I've, I've implemented and my wife and I are in agreement about this is that I'm not going to be alone with another woman, <laughs> you know, and whether it's, it's something that seems innocent in the sense of, you know, a, a cup of coffee or whatever else. That's just a boundary I've set for my life. So that's kind of the frame I'm kind of thinking here. What are some things on a practical sense that you would, you know, you would pass down to us or the listeners that you've learned? Okay. I'm, I'm going to tarry a bit on that question because I've been pressed on that point because mm -hmm. that that's often referred to as the Billy Graham rule, right? Right. Okay. And uh, that's contested these mm -hmm. days. Uh, because of uh, who does this wall off from the opportunity to access people and discuss things and be with people because of this uh, otherwise kind of independent arbitrary rule. I kind of subscribe to that rule. I have broken it on occasion in uh, uh, situations where I felt it is, it is kind of unavoidable. We've got to make this, this uh, journey out to meet these people, whatever, and so on. And, uh, <clears throat> 
we were never really comfortable with that because that was always understood with like you and your wife, Carrie and I, the same. I, I think that's a better rule than a worse rule. And um, find creative ways not to disenfranchise good people who mm-hmm. might be impacted by that and try and be creative and how you might do that. Today with Zoom, it's, it's, <laughs> that's, that's pretty easy. But even face-to-face meetings, there are ways to involve um, sometimes a third person and uh, do that or the office structure, the way you set up the view into the room and things like that, which you're very familiar with and leaving windows open or a door open in an office and whatever. <clears throat> so we find ways to work around that. But I think that is a very contemporary issue right now uh, in society because society is very much moving in its mores regarding that sort of social behavior. I haven't found a great way around the rule that you guys are following. I, I tend to subscribe to it. Uh, as pretty good counsel. One thing I would like to draw attention to, and I've not read this anywhere or whatever, uh, I would say be careful about obscurity. Again, sin loves to hide, sin loves darkness. It doesn't like being exposed. And you know, when I feel I'm most liable to the recurrent strongholds of temptation that would be in my past, it's when I think I'm in a neutral zone not only that nobody's here right now, but I may be in a phase of life where I don't think it's particularly crucial that I'm ultra scrupulous on my behavior. In other words, I'm a, I'm on holidays. Right. You know, I'm on four weeks of holidays. Uh, I'm not preaching next week. I'm not leading the board meeting next week. I'm not doing district conference next week. And sorry, I'm on, if, if you were on a seven-month sabbatical, it's kind of like, well, you know, this is kind of neutral time. I'm, I'm not really in the queue for the, uh, the Super Bowl playoff game next week. So it, it's just kind of free time. In my experience, that is when my mind can start to think I've got latitude. You never have latitude. You never have latitude to sin. I think we need to be very careful when we think we are in a period or a phase or a situation of life when uh, we're less accountable than in other times or seasons. You know, scripture, and this, again, this may not be an infallible interpretation, but let him who standeth take heed lest he fall. You think you're on secure ground for whatever it is that you're thinking you might be contemplating to do. Be very careful what you give yourself permission to do when you think you've got the margin to get away with it. Be careful, yeah, when you think you're in a parenthesis of life that might give you latitude. Because what'll happen, you're not only probably more liable to getting seduced to sin, but you'll end up dealing with that years later. Nothing stays in Vegas. It all comes back three years later when you're leading the youth group and uh, somebody from Vegas, their daughter or husband shows up and all of a sudden, oh my goodness, here's somebody that I know that knows and nothing stays in Vegas in God's universe. And so I, I just think you need to be really careful about thinking about any parenthesis where you think you have latitude 
because I don't think you ever have latitude that isn't eventually going to be something you'll have to deal with. Yeah, I'm glad that you drew attention to that. That's very important. I'm, I'm thinking as you're talking about how we're so focused on what we're doing and not just who we who we are being and how the Lord says to be holy as be holy because he is holy. And whether we're on sabbatical or whether we're preaching seven months in a row, seven weeks in a row, right? We're to be holy as he is holy. And that's the main thing. And so I'm glad that you did draw attention to that. And I think that that is a huge, um, huge temptation for people when when we're not accountable to something to let things slip. So, so thanks for your time, Gary. This has been really, really good. And I hope that as you guys are listening, that you're drawing value, whether you're in a leadership position or not, this is just such good wisdom from a seasoned leader that you guys can take and apply to your life. So thanks for hanging out this week and being a part of our tribe. We'll chat next week. Thanks for listening. If you would like to hear more, please visit purevictorypodcast.com to subscribe. This podcast was made possible by the generous donations of our subscribers. If you would like to help support the cause financially, once again, please visit purevictorypodcast.com.